Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is part two of an interview featuring Jay Campbell and Blair LaCourt, who is a president of AI. This episode picks up where Jay and Blair left off from part one. So if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to part one of the interview from last week. With that said, here's Jay and Blair on today's episode of Driverless. Yeah, Blair, one of the things you touched on is that this, is, this problem is a lot bigger than everybody thought. You know, even, even the, uh, the people skilled in the industry, I think, were a little fooled by how hard it was going to be uh, to make autonomous vehicles relatively safe. Uh, you know, because it seems so easy for us to drive. We're 16 years old and we go out and we drive. Um, right, but you understand that we would not be allowed to drive if we had to if we actually had to pass the same tests that these autonomous cars are passing because they have a lot of functional safety requirements, which means you have to be able to prove that they can do what they do. Whereas we have the problem of the learning curve, which is sometimes teenagers make mistakes until they learn how to drive. So it it is actually a more sophisticated problem. What I would say is that, um, you know, I'm one of the people who also believes history matters. And I also believe in giving people credit where it's due, you know, the Velodyne systems 15 years ago and the DARPA challenge, they developed a spinning system because they knew they needed to see 360 and that they believed that would be the cheapest way to do it. Now, we're talking about LIDAR now. Right, LIDAR system. So it was a spinning system. But today, almost everyone has come to the conclusion, including Velodyne is trying to develop a new product, which they, you don't want those anymore because in a car, it just breaks down, you know, the vibration and the, and the stress. So, um, th- there have been a lot of progress, but what I will tell you is that, the, to your point, people, had, they didn't realize how difficult it was until we had multiple cars on the road, right, that it wasn't in a lab. And so now you're seeing a lot of innovation, and the innovation is happening because the car companies and the what, tier ones who put together the cars are becoming extremely sophisticated in, in how they're trying to solve this problem. So... Um, you know, I think that people are underestimating how quickly this is going to happen. And I also think that you will be seeing in the next two years um, that the ADAS systems are going to become a lot more sophisticated because they don't have to be on all the time. The harder problem is the robo-taxi where you have to never, ever have a situation you can't read. But some of the technology from the robo-taxi systems that we developed there is already migrating down into, uh, into cars to help the cars do lane changing or to help the, you know, the cars do uh, freeway entry, or to help the cars do um, a different type of automated braking when an animal runs out from the lateral thing. So you're, while robo-taxis and mobility has led the way with investment, a lot of that technology is now migrating down into ADAS systems, and I don't know of a car company out there today that's not putting more sophisticated autonomous systems in their cars, and the way you know that that's true is you can't watch a TV commercial today without seeing um, those little animated uh, waves going out of a car. Because everyone has come to the conclusion that making cars smarter is good business. Right. And it's interesting, you know, in talking to you and learning some more of the complexities uh, to see why, you know, even a year ago, people were saying that the car companies, GM, Ford, would be producing cars without steering wheels and without pedals uh, by 2019. And here we are almost halfway through 2019, and uh, we're not seeing those. 
And I think all the companies are backing off of those projections, realizing that this is a, a little more intractable problem than even the experts thought. Well, but you know, again, I will give you one more level and, and hopefully not um, you know, belabor the point is that while mobility allowed um, ADAS, the safety systems to start accelerating, it also allowed a, another class of things called mobility on demand, which is a way to get around the fact that the mobility systems are still working on all the edge cases, which means if I own an asset, so for instance, a bus or a campus vehicle that goes in the same route, I can restrict the process, we call that closed loop, so that I'm not dealing with as many problems as I would before. And so I think while you have not seen consumer cars without steering wheels, these mobility on demand companies that are doing closed loop fixed route implementations are actually picking up speed, uh, if you excuse the pun. So I think you have to look at this as a, a set of technologies that's enabling three different markets, robo-taxis, mobility on demand, which look a lot like robo-taxis, except that they're constrained in a closed loop and they actually only have to deal with certain problems. And then there's breaking the system into little pieces where you're not doing mobility all the time, you're only doing it when you're on the highway. So I do think that you're seeing some of these areas speed up, like ADAS and mobility on demand. So what, what do you see in, in a, from your perspective, from, from a guy who's um, obviously studied all of this and, uh, and sees this from a different view, um, what do you think about the future of autonomous driving? I, I know I'm not gonna get in my car next year and, uh, and, and, and fall asleep on the way to work, uh, but what can I expect that I will see in the coming years. And, right. Well, and, and I, it, listen, I, I, um, I would preface this by saying that I am happy to give everyone out there my philosophy, but it's probably worth what you paid for it. Um, so I'm not, and you know, since you didn't pay anything, I, I'm, I'm not taking uh, responsibility. But I can, I can give you my feeling. Um, and, and again, I like to look at history um, because business models. Um, tend to actually repeat themselves. And so if you take a look at uh, where people thought autonomous cars would be, which is a consumer-based car, the average American drives his car between four and 6% per, uh, percent of the time, right, of, of the total hours in, in a total week, right? Some people drive a little bit more and a lot of people drive a little bit less. They have a second car that they don't drive at all. I have a 1995 Wrangler, which I refuse to get rid of, which has 32,000 miles on it. And that makes me feel good every time I, uh, I do ride around the block in my, my hometown. But we do not tend to effectively use our assets. So if the theory was that making a car autonomous, charging whatever you think, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, whatever the price is, is gonna change someone's pattern, you probably are gonna change their pattern driving four to 6%, maybe they'll drive six to 12%, right? But you're, for the average person, it really wasn't, it's not gonna add the kind of value you want, which is why the ADAS systems for two or $3,000, actually it's worth, the, it's worth the cost. So I don't think we're gonna change the way that consumers right away, um, how, many, how much time they use their car. Now, if you take a look at uh, mobility on a demand or a shared asset, if I can bring the usage of that car from four to six percent to ninety-four percent, 
right? And I can bring the cost of delivery because I don't have a driver in it down to a dollar or $2 per mile. Now I think that that's revolutionary and that will change almost everything that we do. Um, so I, I kind of look back and I tried to, I tried to find some, uh, maybe some examples of, of things like this that have, that have happened in the past. And these are gonna sound like strange analogies until you step back from them. You know, in 1999, I, I took a company public during the heyday of, of the internet. And I was a lot younger then, and I didn't um, necessarily understand the bigger implications of it. But when I look back, what I realized was the investment that went into the building of the internet allowed um, basically communication and marketing to be free. And therefore, it not only spawned the ability to get a 99 cent app or to get Tinder on your phone, but it also spurned the ability for people to start new businesses and actually um, um, not have to have physical storefronts. So the lowering of the cost of the barrier of marketing and communication, actually the bigger impact wasn't the communication, it was the new businesses that were developed around that free cost. Then when you take a look at, um, I love my BlackBerry, I still miss it every day, um, but you know when you take a look at smartphones, and you take a look at you know Apple at the at the beginning, the ability to actually allow you to have processing power and applications, process-based applications, fundamentally changed the way that you looked at computing. And while I started at Sun Microsystems and we talked in 1992 about edge computing, really smartphones brought edge computing costs down to zero. And since you uh, could get the internet as a communication it enabled a lot of things that could never have been enabled. And it was a second wave of businesses that could never exist before or interactions that couldn't exist before that were based on the almost zero cost of being able to process information. Like, you know, the same level I'm going to the, I'm going into space next year and I'm going to the 50th anniversary with, uh, with Buzz Aldrin, you know, for the Apollo thing, the amount of computing power, as people have said in that entire spaceship are equal to, half the power on the phone that you can buy today. So again, there was a wave of innovation of businesses that never existed before because you brought processing power, the cost of it down to almost zero. I would liken autonomous driving um, to these two trends in the sense that while yes, it will change car companies and it will change uh, the same way that internet communication companies, the real benefit will be once the driving costs, I've said this a couple of times, goes down to a dollar, per mile, you change the way that all businesses run. So for instance, um, you can have a movie theater that decides to bundle, uh, they'll pick you up and they'll drop you off on a Wednesday night as long as you come out. You will go places that you wouldn't have gone to before because you can uh, actually work in the car or drink in the car. It's gonna enable retail to function where it can do the last mile and deliver things and build it into the cost of the product. So what I think you will see is a third wave of innovation that's built off of free logistics um, or almost free logistics that people aren't expecting, um, but that will you know, be very, very different. You're also gonna have a new data set that you never had before because you're gonna be tracking all of these people everywhere. And so you're gonna have businesses that are built off of that. You're gonna be able to deliver place-based media um, inside of the vehicle that could bring you to a drive-through to give you what you wanted. So I think the societal impacts of this third wave are gonna be started with logistics. 
um, but they will change almost everything that we do. Um, and they'll have impacts on highly developed nations like ourselves. But I think when you look at the impact on someplace like China, where you have cities of 25 to 35 million people, um, I think that, that that's the reason they're investing so much money in autonomous driving, is that, the, that you, you can reroute, you can bring down congestion, you're gonna be using EVs, you can change the flow of commerce, um, and you can track everything that happens and tax it or manage it. So again, to, just to give you a little wild view of the world is that I, I, I think you're gonna be surprised that how quickly this happens because there will be a massive amount of money being made off the back of free logistics. You know, Blair, Blair, we, we did a, a podcast uh, a few months ago on how cities will change, but um, you know, so I'm a little up on this, but I really didn't look at some of the things which I, I found to be the most fascinating of what we've talked about today. And that's that once we bring the value or the cost of driving so insignificantly down, um, it, it develops all sorts of different motivations. It allows what you said, you know, uh, you want to go to dinner at, at a restaurant while well, they offer to come pick you up and they're going to send a car to pick you up and take you home. And um, it, it does develop a different economic model, I guess, than we have. Right. Today. Like you may, there may be a car in your area and the car may, they may send you a note and say, I got a car right outside. Are you interested? Yeah. Right. Or for instance, you know, one of the, what I think are the less looked at assets out there is I always look at things on a spectrum from people who make assets to people who own assets, to people who provide services on assets. Well, rental car companies, why would you have to have parking lots? You know, they already have front end and back end services and they already know how to actually rent cars. They could have a, a group of cars. They could be the next taxi companies, right? That just roam around. And when they're not being used, they can be offloaded for commercial. And when they can be used for higher margin business, they'll be used uh, for something else. So I do think that there's a, it's an interesting, we will, I, there'll be a lot of innovation. Now, I will give you my Luddite view of the world, which is there'll also be uh, an analogy to horses, right? When horses went away in the early 1900s, um, and that was basically driven by business models, right? You had the oil companies buying up the commuter lines and taking them down, and you had the car companies actually pushing uh, traffic regulations that took people off of streets because people used to own the streets onto sidewalks, which were invented so that cars could own the street. You'll probably have you know, a significant number of cars owned by very wealthy people, just like you have people who own horses on ranches, and they'll use them for their pleasure because they can afford to do it. But even those people, you know, a significant amount of time will probably use um, a very free asset um, when they're not driving their very high-end cars. So I don't think internal combustion engines are gonna go away or that there won't be a significant number of people who may own their own cars that have intelligence built into it and, and use them for fun. But I think the utilitarian version of logistics is gonna be dominated by the economic model of less than a dollar per mile. And if you actually go take a look at the breakdown of how much you pay today, you don't realize how much you actually pay for your car when you add in that you wouldn't have to have a garage, that you wouldn't have to go to car washes, that you wouldn't have to have a valet, that you wouldn't have to look for a parking space and take the time to look for a parking space, that you wouldn't have to pay you know, for gas. When you add those things up- You wouldn't have insurance. You wouldn't have insurance, right? And so 
when you add those things up, we really are paying a premium for um, having that freedom um, to have a car. So I think that all of us are, you know, you can see how quickly economics change behavior. I think we'll probably have a mixture. I don't think you're going to just go to uh, all autonomous cars. And that, you know, is maybe for another podcast, is an interesting transition when you have to share the roads with, uh, with two different programming uh, mentalities, right? Where, you know, humans think differently than an autonomous car does. And, right. One uh, of the things that, that I have found fascinating about having autonomous vehicles, if you only have autonomous vehicles, is we don't need stoplights. Um, right. You know, because they can, all, all the cars will communicate to each other and they'll figure out the most effective way to zoom through the intersection. And then you add somebody with their 1974 Camaro in the midst of that. Um, not that I don't like Camaros. I, I had a, I had a Firebird. Firebird, so don't, <laughs> yeah. Firebirds, all right? I did too. So, um, you know, that does add a complexity. Um, yeah, and look, you know, there's, and again, I know we're just wrapping up, but there's also interesting things like, uh, you know, how intelligent can infrastructure be? Because the more intelligent the infrastructure, and I'm not talking about V to X or V to V, where you have to put in high tech stuff. So for instance, one of the little known fact is the lar second largest infrastructure company in the world is Sikorsky, who makes crystal, right? And you're thinking, well, what did the family who made crystal for the royalty, uh, you know, invest in other things to diversify their portfolio? No, they broke a bunch of crystal one day and they realized that, hey, humans with eyes like light refraction, so they mix it in with the road paint. So they're one of the biggest infrastructure companies in the world. Well, as we go forward, computers, you know, and uh, don't need to actually see light refraction. You can actually paint things with um, 1550 reflective, which is the, the wavelength of our LIDAR um, system that will make the roads much more intelligent. So for instance, 3M has been building in RFID into street signs for years and now you can transmit information. Or you could actually have hot points, or you could actually upload and download information across highways. So there's gonna be a lot of changes. Now, again, not to bring up China again, uh, as they're relevant in the news, is- I'm sorry, I, I, I missed you there, you, you faded out. Not to bring up whom? China, again, but if you take a look at the fact that they're in a different cycle where they're building a lot of infrastructure, they're actually building smart infrastructure as they're building infrastructure. So while we'll be retrofitting infrastructure, they'll be building new infrastructure. Uh, just another reason why, you know, China will have probably a lot of innovation. Um, I think the innovation today happens in the U.S. I think there will be a draw um, for U.S. companies to sell to China or for Chinese companies to start things up because I think they're in the sweet spot of being able to use this, you know, new free logistics in a way that's, uh, that's could be very, very profitable. This is, this is all amazing stuff. And um, somehow I, I feel like we could talk for another hour and still scratch the surface. Well, I, I think you mean I could talk for another hour, but yeah, you, told me, either you way. told me I was getting paid by the word. So I, I take you by your, your, you know, your commitment that you'll give me the tech. Well, yeah, I am a lawyer. Is a verbal contract, a, you know, enforceable on a video chat? I don't know. Maybe. We'll have to, I, I hope we don't have to decide. But Blair, it's been wonderful. Um, I've learned a lot of very fascinating uh, things about AI today that I didn't appreciate even after doing this podcast for uh, the last several months. And 
I, I hope we can talk again in the future. Um, I look forward to seeing uh, IDAR used in more applications. And, uh, you know, once that happens, yeah, maybe from, from, from your mouth to God's ears, we want IDAR yeah. used more. But also, go take a look at that uh, Ben Underwood video, you know, and, and that's it's a fascinating, fascinating. It's amazing what people can do. It is. And, and hopefully we can capture that in uh, the artificial perception and uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, everybody thinks that cameras are, are, I'm sorry, the computers are foolproof. And 95, 94% of accidents are caused by humans. But I, I think we have to realize that we're still going to have accidents. It, it's just they're going to be different accidents. They're going to be caused by different things. That, that, that's very, it's very poignant. And as my dad would say, your biggest strength is always your biggest weakness. And while computers have high strengths and predictability and repetition, they have big weaknesses when they're not programmed for intelligence. And the opposite is true for, for humans. So I think that's a, it's great. It's a great takeaway, which is there's usually never a silver bullet. Your biggest strength always tends to be the biggest weakness and the system approach the multi-layered system approach, whether you're talking in my old world about security or you're talking about autonomous cars is probably going to be um, the best, not only way to interrogate the environment, but allow you to innovate over time. Because I'll tell you, people are coming up with new technology every six months and you want to have a system that you can continue to add things into um, because you don't have time to do, uh, you know, wait 18 months to update your systems these days. The, there's so much innovation happening. It's a very exciting time. It is exciting. Thank you very much, Blair. And I hope we can talk again soon. Uh, thanks. That'll do it for today's episode of Driverless. If you'd like to give us feedback or join the discussion, you can contact us at at underscore driverless on Twitter or driverless at tuckerellis.com. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks as always for listening and talk to you soon.